good morning. Welcome. We are opening God's word together, and that is a glorious thing, isn't it? What a precious gift we've been given in God's word. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me now to our passage for this morning. Our passage this morning is found in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 9. We're going to get to that in just a moment, but I want us to be ready for that when we get there. This morning, we are in that second week of our summer sermon series where we're looking at the Apostles' Creed together. The Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest of the Christian creeds. It's been used by Christians around the world for almost 2,000 years. Creeds have two main purposes. They help us to, to correct errors about what people believe the Bible teaches, and they are used for the spiritual formation of God's people. They correct errors, and they teach God's people. Those are the two main purposes of the creeds. It's important for us to say out loud and to, to remember, we are not preaching the Apostles' Creed this summer. We are preaching the Bible, right? The creeds have no authority unto themselves except that which they derive from the Word of God. And so the creeds point outside of themselves. They point to that ultimate authority, which is God's Word. Maybe a good way to think about the relationship between the creeds and the Bible is to think about the relationship between the sun and the moon. Now, the sun has all the light. It has all the heat. Sometimes we think that the moon has light and heat, but it's only borrowing. It's only taking it from the sun. If you were outside last night, you saw that there was a full moon, right? It looked like the sun was, or the moon was shining, and yet it wasn't. It was taking the, the light of the sun and reflecting it to us here on earth. The creeds reflect, but they have no light. They have no heat of themselves. And so this summer, we are preaching the Bible, but we're using the Apostles' Creed as a starting point. And that's a good thing because doing that will help to shape us as more fully formed followers of Jesus Christ. The Apostles' Creed, the, the creeds provide clarity. And that's a good thing because there are a lot of false assumptions and incorrect thinking about the Trinity that we need to correct. And the creed will help us to do that. Now, the Apostles' Creed begins with two very important words. It begins with the words, I believe. Not I know, I believe. And that's important because there are two ways to know truth. You can know it in your mind, and that's called understanding. Or you can know it in your heart, and that's called believing. Think about it this way. Think about the difference this way. There are a whole lot of things that I know, that I understand in my mind, that have no effect on how I live my life. There's a whole long list of things that I should do or, or shouldn't do, and knowing it in my mind has no effect on whether I actually do them or not. But belief is different. Belief drives the actions of our life. Belief puts us in motion. The gospel, the, the Apostle Creed says, I believe. I believe it in my heart. I don't just know it in my mind. I believe it in my heart. And that was, that's what drives us as people of God. And when the Apostles' Creed is read, historically has been both the, the greatest act of rebellion and at the same time the greatest act of allegiance. And here's what I mean by that. When people stand to recite the Apostles' Creed, they are saying that anything that stands against what the Word of God says, we reject that. And at the same time, we are pledging allegiance to the God of the Bible. We reject all teachings contrary to the Bible. 
We stand and, and say this is what we believe and this is what we don't believe. For example, we, we stand and reject the false narratives of, of materialism, which tells us that what we need to be happy and content is more and better stuff. That what we need to be happy is, is to have a bigger house and a nicer car and better looking people around us. When we stand to, to recite the Apostles' Creed, we are rejecting the false narratives of our day, the false teaching of our day, and we are pledging allegiance to the God of the Bible. I'd like us to do that together right now. And so if you are able, please stand right now, and we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. The words will be on the screen for us. Say this with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, Pastor Don preached about the Trinity. And it's important that we believe that God is three distinct persons, and yet at the same time, one God. So there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In the next few weeks, we will be looking at and talking about God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But this morning, I want us to talk about God the Father, our Heavenly Father. Now, what we believe about God is incredibly important. In fact, A.W. Tozer wrote these words. He's a, a theologian from the last century. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. How you picture God affects how you see yourself and how you see the world, and how you see your place in the world. For example, some people picture God as being a kind grandfatherly type. He's loving, he's kind, he's the kind of person you want to spend time with. But he's not exactly strong enough or powerful enough to take care of your biggest problems. Other people picture God as being strong and powerful, but a little bit intimidating. He can take care of your problems, but you don't want to get too close to him. Some people picture God as being angry or perhaps distant and aloof. If that's how you picture God, you're going to picture yourself as being all alone in the world because he's not someone that you can take your challenges to. But if you picture God as being caring and engaged in your life, then no matter what you're facing, you know that you don't face it alone. How you picture God makes a huge difference in how you see yourself and how you see your place in the world. This morning, I want us to think about and to realize that our God, our Heavenly Father, is both infinitely powerful, at the same time, he is intensely personal. We have an infinitely powerful Heavenly Father who is also intensely personal. Having said that, let's go to our passage for this morning. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This prayer that Jesus taught as a model prayer to his disciples and to us as well speaks about God's infinite power and it speaks about his intense, how intensely personal he is. Now, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East in the first century for pagan people to consider their God father. The Romans saw Zeus as their father, and they saw the Roman emperor as a, a kind of a God that sometimes they would refer to as father. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about something completely different here, right? He's not talking about our heavenly father in Zeus-like terms. You may remember Zeus was not exactly the kind of dad you wanted to play with. He was always looking to catch you making a mistake, looking to catch you messing up. He had this lightning bolt in his hands. He was always watching, knowing he was going to catch you making a mistake. But that's not how Jesus talks about our Heavenly Father. In other passages, Jesus uses the word Abba, which is a word for Father that indicates intimacy. Basically, it's our word Daddy. Now, Daddy is what my daughters call me, and I absolutely love it. There's an affection that they feel from me. They know that my love for them is deep and profound, that there is nothing that I wouldn't do for them. Our Heavenly Father, there's a tenderness to him that's personal, intensely personal. And it's our Heavenly Father who loves his people and seeks his people's good. But our God is not just intensely personal. He is infinitely powerful. He is our Father in heaven. Now we know that God is, is omnipresent, that he is everywhere all the time, that he's not contained into one place at a time, but the Bible talks about the fact that God rules and that he reigns from a specific place in the universe, a place called heaven. He is omnipresent, he is everywhere all at once, he's outside the boundaries of time. And yet the Bible paints a picture of a throne room in heaven from which God rules. He is our father. He's our Father in heaven, and there's nothing that he cannot do. But look what Jesus teaches next. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is another example of God's infinite power. His name throughout history, throughout Scripture, is hallowed. It's, it's revered, right? God's name is revered. It has a weight to it, a, a weightiness to it. There's an immensity about God. There's a, there's a good kind of fear that's based in respect when we think about God our Father. I want to use an illustration to help explain that. I think we, we would all agree that the greater the mammal, the larger the mammal, the greater our fear when we engage it. For example, if I were to show up at your house tonight and knock on the door, suppose you've got a, a chihuahua that you've named Diesel. I walk into your house and, and Diesel is going nuts. He's barking, he's trying to attack me, but I'm not afraid. I'm not nervous being in the presence of Diesel because I know I could just squash your little chihuahua and just keep on going. <laughs> but suppose instead of a chihuahua named Diesel, you've got a German shepherd named Blitz. This is the German shepherd you had shipped in from Berlin. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit different around Blitz than I was around Diesel. There's, there's going to be some fear involved, right? Some respect at what Blitz could do to me. 
There's a difference in how I approach blitz as opposed to how I approach diesel. Now, if that's true at the mammal level, how much more so is it at the, the immensity, the scope of the power of our Father? There's a, a, there's a much different way that we approach, right? Hallowed be God's name. He's everywhere at once. The Old Testament tells us, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Some people use God's name as a, a curse word. That's not what this is talking about. It's saying don't be flippant about the things of God. Don't take God lightly. There's a seriousness to God. Don't take his name lightly. Don't take his renown lightly. Hallowed be your name. Then Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the thing about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was inaugurated at Jesus' first coming when he came to earth 2,000 years ago. It's active and it's alive and it's not fully consummated yet. That won't happen until Jesus returns at his second coming. When Jesus comes to make all things right, when Jesus comes to make things the way they were meant to be before sin entered into the world, the way, they were, the way things were in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned. The Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, there's a day coming when there's going to be peace in the animal kingdom, where the lion and the lamb will lie down together, where there is, um, there is roses blooming in the desert. Now, that, that day hasn't come yet because tigers are still hunting Bambi. But the day is coming when there will be peace in the animal kingdom and where deserts will bloom with roses. I know some of you have green thumbs, right? You've got a yard, and it's absolutely gorgeous. You've got that, that crate myrtle growing in your backyard, and it, it looks amazing. You've got that Japanese maple tree growing in the front yard, and it's providing shade for the whole front yard. You know what to plant, you know where to plant it, you know how to plant it, and your yard is looking gorgeous. But here's the challenge for you green thumbs. Try to make the desert bloom with roses. You can't do it, can you? But our God can. He can bring peace to the animal kingdom. He can make the desert bloom with roses, and then he will put an end to death. The Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more disease, no more death. How infinitely powerful is our Heavenly Father. He will make things right again, and he will put an end to death. He will put death to death. The lion and the lamb lying together in the end of death. And that, it's a lot different than it is today, right? Our world has, is groaning. There's a brokenness. There's a longing within our world today. And we long for the consummation of the kingdom. We long for Jesus' returns, don't we? Jesus' prayer moves to the intensely personal here. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, he's teaching us to pray this, but he, when we say, give us this day our daily bread, we're not praying, God, give me everything I want, right? We are saying that because our God is intensely personal, we trust him to give us everything we need. Now, I'm going to say something a little bit bold right now, and I, I hope it doesn't offend anybody, but it might, and I've got to love you enough to say it anyway. It is only an unloving, selfish father who says yes to all of his children's requests. Or maybe a father that's dealing with some inadequacies in his role as a father. See, a loving, personal father 
does not say yes to all of his children's requests because a child's desires are immature. And some of those desires will actually harm them. And so a loving personal father has got to be willing to say, I'm going to be, your kill, I'm going to be the killjoy in order for your ultimate joy. I'm going to be the bad guy for your safety. I'm going to say no to those things that would not be good to you because I want you to grow up healthy and I want you to grow up safe. Now, my guess is that if you are over the age of 20, you already have examples of where we're headed next because you've already said, thank you, God, for saying no to that one. You remember that prayer request that you made during your sophomore year of high school and you look back at it and say, God, thanks for saying no to that one. See, give us this day our daily bread isn't saying, God, give me everything I want. It's saying, God, give me what I need. Now, you might be brilliant. You might be brilliant in business. You might be brilliant in everything that you do, but you're still not smarter than God. And you're certainly not smarter than God when it comes to what you need. Be like my daughter when she was four, maybe five years old, trying to convince me that, that her way was better than mine. Now, they have surpassed me in, in wisdom and intelligence now, but when they were four or five, it's, it's not as if I, I didn't already know more than them at that point. But I had been around longer. I had more experience, and I knew that there were some things that would not be good to give them. Bible stays, or the, the prayer stays personal, and Jesus moves on to say, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You may have grown up learning this prayer, and instead of the word debt, you, you use the word sin or trespass. They, they mean the same thing. Everybody trespasses. Everybody sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, all sin all sin, whether it be sin of commission, where I do something I should not do, or sins of omission, where I don't do what I should do. All sins are first and foremost against our Heavenly Father. We sin primarily against God, and yet we can't sin against this loving, personal Father without there being collateral damage. There's always collateral damage. There will be ramifications in your marriage or in your family. There'll be ramifications at work or in your relationships. We cannot sin against our infinitely powerful, intensely personal God and not have collateral damage. Now, why do I say that this part of the prayer is intensely personal? It's a reminder that the gospel enters into our rebellion, into our sin, and heals it with the forgiveness of Jesus. Jesus forgives our sin, makes us right with God, and then makes us right with each other. God forgives my sin. He heals me. He reconciles me to himself. And then he reconciles me to others that I have sinned against as well. Not only is our vertical relationship with God being healed, but our horizontal relationship with others begins to be healed as well. This is intensely personal. And then Jesus stays personal. He teaches us, lead us not into temptation. The Apostle Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The reason why I would categorize this as intensely personal is because we all struggle with different things. We're all tempted with different things. A thing that you are tempted with may not even be on the radar of someone else. And that thing that someone else is, is tempted by and struggles with, you may not even be concerned about. 
We have an intensely personal Heavenly Father who knows what you struggle with. He knows what your challenges are. And he promises that you will never be tempted beyond what you can bear. And that when you are tempted, you'll be given a way out so that you can endure it. And then it ends. The prayer ends with God's infinite power. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I know that many of us enjoy watching movies. Very often in a movie, there's a bad guy. One of the characters is the bad guy, the antagonist. And sometimes the bad guy is even what you might call evil. Sometimes in these movies, when that evil person comes on the scene, no one has a chance. No one has a chance when he's there. But that's not the way it is in the Bible. That's not the way that it is in real life. When that evil one comes, when he, he wants to attack us, we don't have to have fear because we know that that's not the end of the story. We have an infinitely powerful God by our side who fights on our behalf. The Bible paints a vivid picture of this when it talks about the end times. In the book of Revelation, there's a scene called the Battle of Armageddon. All of the enemies of God have gathered in the Valley of Arduino. God shows up and he speaks three words. It is done. And suddenly there's this enormous earthquake and it is done. Three words, the, the shortest battle in the history of the universe. Our God is infinitely powerful. As we think about our infinitely powerful Heavenly Father, our, our, our Father who is infinitely powerful and intensely personal, we want to develop some symmetry. How do we do that? Maybe you're here this morning and you think of God as being infinitely powerful. That's something you picture and can relate to well but you struggle to see him as intensely personal. If that's what, what your faith walk is like, then your, your faith foundation is gonna be a, a series of, of do and don'ts, a checklist of things to check off that you're doing for God. You're basing your, your relationship with God on, I don't wanna get him upset with me. He's strong and powerful, but I'm not so certain about his love. And so I'm gonna live this life and pursue this life of holiness and make sure that God doesn't get upset with me. Now, the Bible calls us all to a life of holiness. That's the path that God has set out for us. But at the same time, we also must understand that God delights in us. He takes great pleasure in you. And maybe it's hard for you to picture a God who takes pleasure in you, a, a heavenly Father who loves you and is intensely personal. Maybe because your relationship with your earthly father makes it difficult to see a heavenly father that way. Or maybe that's not your issue. Maybe you have no problem seeing God as intensely personal, but, but you don't have any fear, no holy reverence or awe of him. Maybe you've even made him into your little buddy, but you've got no respect, no reverence, no awe of him. You have no sense of his immensity. You have no sense of the, the greatness of God. Some people fall into the category of deism. Deism is not Christianity. Deism is the idea that there's this infinite, all-powerful God who created the world and got it running, and then he just walked away and let it go by itself. They would argue that he is not intimately acquainted with us, that he doesn't care what happens on earth. He got things started and he left, so we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's deism, but it's not Christianity. There's something that, that starts to happen. There's something that begins happening when we begin to understand that God is both infinitely powerful and at the same time intensely personal. We begin to feel safer. 
You know, the world can be a scary place. And it's especially scary when my safety is dependent on me. But when I began to understand that my God is infinitely powerful and that he is crazy about me, that his eyes are on me, I began to feel safer. We realize that he stands ready to protect us when there are those who would want to do us harm. I get a little understanding of this when I think about my own daughters. They are my joy. There is nothing I would not do for them. Somebody once said that becoming a parent is, is like waking up one day and discovering that now your heart is running around outside of your body. It's true, isn't it? Right? There is a great joy. There's a great pleasure that I have in being a father. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them. There's nothing I wouldn't do to protect them. Now, please understand, I am completely nonviolent. I have never been in a fight in my life. There's not a violent bone in my body. But if somebody would deliberately decide to do harm to one of my daughters, you would see this 5'11", 180-pound body unleashed with fury. I'd probably lose my job, and I'd probably have to start a ministry in a prison somewhere. <laughs> but there's nothing I wouldn't do to protect my daughters. When I think about that, that desire to protect that's based on love, I begin to understand how my Heavenly Father looks at me. You know, there's a wonderful thing about being in the family of God. Wonderful thing about the family of God. Because we're so different, right? The family of God is so different. Here, around the world, we, we look so different. We have different backgrounds. We come from different socioeconomic places. We speak different languages. Some of us have been Christians for 20 years and others have been Christians for 20 days. There's an amazing amount of diversity present here today, right? And that's an amazing thing. We all come here. The reason we are here together, this diverse crowd, the reason we're here together is because we have one heavenly father. One heavenly father. We are part of one family. We have one heavenly father, which makes us brothers and sisters. I am your brother. You are my brother. You are my sister. Which prompts the question, what time should I show up for dinner tonight? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you call us your children. You are so good. Thank you that we are not alone in this world, that you are with us. You are with us on the mountaintops where we experience great joy, and you are with us in the valleys where we struggle. Thank you that we can know you that you have made yourself known to us. Thank you that your desire for us is that we would know you intimately. May we have an understanding of who you are and what you are like, and as we do that, may we grow as we seek you. May it help us to better understand this world and our place in it. May it fill us with confidence and peace and joy. May we fully live the life that you intended for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.